Good morning, Grace. Thanks for joining us online today. I uh, hope that you have had a great weekend this weekend. Hey, uh, we're going to start things a little bit different. We're going to look at Psalm 51 as we continue this series, Summer in the Psalms. Uh, and I would love for you to have the psalm open, but and rather than reading it, uh, I'm going to just ask you to take it in. I've asked some friends from Grace uh, to record their reading of this. And so we're just going to show it to you on video. And I just encourage you to listen to their voices, to watch the words as they come up on the screen, and just let the psalm kind of wash over you as we go through it. Now, just keep your Bibles open to Psalm 51, because we're certainly going to go back and kind of uh, look at it in detail. But for right now, let's just listen to this video. We're good. Don't worry about it. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity for us to dive into Psalm 51. Thank you for the gift uh, this psalm has been to me even in the last week. I pray that it would be a watershed moment for many of us. Uh, for us as a church, I pray that we would take the words of David seriously, uh, that they would inspire us. Thank you again for your word. Thank you for the fact that you are alive, that you speak to us. And I pray that you would speak to each person listening this morning, that you would speak a word to them. And in speaking that word, that they would uh, just finish this broadcast different than it started, that they would be different because they've interacted with the living God. Amen. 16th century theologian, uh, his name is Victor Stringulus, wrote uh, about Psalm 51, and he said, this psalm is the brightest gem in the whole book and contains instructions so large and doctrine so precious that the tongue of angels could not do justice to the full development. It's probably one of the most familiar, probably one of the most often sung, often quoted psalms. Uh, it's the first psalm that, that mentions the Holy Spirit and gives mention to that. Uh, it was a psalm that was written by an individual as they were pouring out their heart to God, but it was intended for corporate consumption. Matter of fact, the psalm starts with the words to the choir master, or maybe you have an, a different version. It says to the chief musician. This is a psalm that was intended to be used in a corporate setting to lead people through a process of purging themselves of anything that, that hinders their relationship with God. Simply put, this psalm has the potential to radically transform your life, to radically transform your walk with God, to radically make your walk with God actually better. I say it all the time, but the movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. And this psalm is an invitation. It's an invitation for more of God. It's an invitation for a life-changing encounter with God. It's an invitation to go deeper, to experience more of God, and to just have in your walk with God more than you can ask, think, or imagine. There's a passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, that says that we are to throw off, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are to throw off everything, not throw off some things, not throw off uh, just a, a couple of things, but throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, a race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
And Psalm 51 is this vivid portrait, if you will, of living out Hebrews 12, this running this race unencumbered of thriving in our walk with God, experiencing more of his power, more of his goodness in our everyday experiences. Sin is like an anchor. It keeps us from moving forward with God. Sin is like large rocks in the stream that keep the spirit of God from flowing in us and through us. And that's why the writer in Hebrews is saying, throw off anything that hinders your having more of God, more of God's spirit, more of God's presence in your life. So I know it's early on in this uh, talk, but I'm going to start with a question. I just want you to, to take the question seriously, to really answer in your heart the question that I'm about to ask. Do you want to experience more of God? Are you satisfied with where you are? Do you want more of God? And a follow-up question, are you willing to let go of anything, and I mean anything, that hinders more of God? I've said this a lot since this whole pandemic has started, but I think this is a season that God wants to bring about revival. He wants to bring about renewal in his, in his church. He wants us to respond in a particular way so that revival will happen. And, and Psalm 51 is a critical step in that journey. It's a critical step in the journey of renewal and the journey of revival. But the interesting thing is I don't think Psalm 51 is the starting point. There's something that has to happen in us before Psalm 51 takes place. I believe the bravest prayer you can pray as a follower of Jesus is a prayer that's found in Psalm 139. I'm going to read it from the New King James Version because I think it's just a little more raw and a little more gritty. But Psalm 139, there is this prayer by the same guy, David, that says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. Same writer of both Psalms. Search me. Do this complete inventory of who I am. God, you already know me. You would already know everything about me. But would you show me anything that offends you, anything that hinders my walk with you, anything, any anxieties, any sin, anything that keeps me from experiencing all that you have for me? I don't know if you know this, but when we sin, it, it hurts God. It grieves God. It offends God. Our sin, sin hinders our ability to delight in God, to experience the living God. So we pray, show me where I've been a total schmuck and help me to walk the path that you have for me. And then when we pray that God brings things to mind and then we can walk out the path of Psalm 51, the path of renewal and the path of revival. God reveals to us our offenses. And we are, in, as verse one says, to cry out for mercy. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. We cry out to God, God, please be merciful to me. The path of renewal and revival starts with a crying out for mercy and asking for forgiveness. The second part of verse one, he says, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. David models for us 
this, this instructs for us something that is absolutely necessary in our coming to Jesus and in our walking faithfully with Jesus. If we are to truly come to Jesus, then there has to be a time when we repent of our sins. Thomas Chalmers wrote, My God, whether recent or not, give me to feel the enormity of my manifold offense. Search me, know me, and show me where I offend you. David writes in verse 3, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me, he says. He's saying, I can see my sin and I see it for what it really is. I know how wrong it is. You don't see any making excuses. I, I know I did this, but there's none of that going on. One of the things I want you to hear is that when God shows you your offense, when God shows you your sin, when he shows you the things that hinder your walk with God, it will always be specific. He's never going to talk in generalities. Now, we want to say, yeah, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done bad things. Will you just forgive me of everything bad I've ever done in my life? And, and that's part of the confession. But the truth is, when God begins to bring things to mind, it will be very specific. How are we going to turn away from a particular behavior and an attitude if we don't see that behavior or see that attitude for what it actually is? The truth is, this is just a relational requirement, not just between you and God, but between you and other people. If I go to Meg and I say something like, honey, I'm sorry for anything I've done along the way that might hurt you or have betrayed you, that's nice. She's not going to object to me saying that. But on the other hand, when I see a particular behavior that has offended Meg, or if I've treated Meg in a particular way that is uncaring to her, and I go to her and say, Meg, when I did that, I am very sorry. I should have treated you differently. I should have responded to you differently. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? So when, when we talk in generalities, it's not nearly as effective. David then says something fascinating. In verse 4, he says, Against you and only you have I sinned. I remember the first time I looked at this passage and I read it, I remember thinking to myself, Yeah, but, but what about Uriah? He's dead. What about the people of Israel who suffer the consequences of David's indiscretion? What about all the family members who are adversely affected by David's horrific behavior? When he says, against you and only you have I sinned, I don't think he's saying that, that, that he hasn't offended anyone else. What he knows is that the root cause of all of his sin is between him and God. The reality of our sin is first and foremost a sin against God. It reveals our selfishness. It reveals our wicked ways. Our sin always reveals a lack of love for God. Let me say that again. Our sin always reveals a lack of love for God. If I choose to look at bad stuff on my cell phone, if I'm saying in that moment that I pick up my cell phone and go to images that I know I shouldn't go to, in that moment, I'm saying, God, I don't love you. I don't trust you. I don't want what you want for me. I want to do what I want to do. Now, make no mistake, when I click on images that I shouldn't click on on my, on my phone, I am sinning against Meg. I'm sinning against my children. I'm sinning against other people. But first and foremost, it is a sin against God. Now, some of you are still struggling uh, that I said our sin reveals a lack of love. But those are not my words. They're the words of Jesus. In John 14, he said, If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me, right? We honor and we respect those we love. We do what's right by those we love. We serve those we love. Love is more than just an emotion. It's a displayed in our behavior. I cannot truly love God and sin against him at the same time. I cannot love Meg and treat her poorly at the same time. Love requires action. Love requires commitment. But there's great news. 1 John 1 9 says to us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This confession is, is all about the heart. If we say that we're sorry because we got caught, then we're not really sorry about the behavior. We're sorry about the consequences of what we've done. Psalm 51, 1 John 1, 9 means that, that we confess how we know what we have done grieves the heart of God, how it separated us from the love of God. It's a recognition that first and foremost, we have sinned against God who loves us with unfailing love. And then David prays in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was, was a plant, but I love this. If you go all the way back to the Exodus story, there's this, that's the story of God freeing the Israelites from the hand of slavery, right, in, in Egypt. And, and, it, and it ends that whole process of being freed. The, the last plague is, is the death of the firstborn. And they're told if they would kill a lamb, an unblemished lamb, and they would spread the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, they would spread that blood with the plant hyssop. And that was all a foreshadowing of Jesus, this amazing liberation from the people from bondage was, was performed with this plant called hyssop in the spreading of the blood. David's sin was actually the blood of Uriah. His adulterous relationship with Bathsheba was actually a capital offense. David knew the, the guilt of his crime and he knew that it was worthy of death by God's law and he prays to God, let the angel of death pass over me, cleanse me with hyssop, forgive me, cleanse me. And then he says these powerful words, and I shall be clean. If we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that he says that you'll cleanse me whiter than snow. He doesn't say you're gonna cleanse me as white as snow. It's actually whiter than snow, as white as white can get. You can hear the joy and the gladness in this psalm. You can hear the pain. You can hear the, the, the anguish of the way he grieves God. But you can also hear the joy of the forgiveness that he receives. He says, let my bones rejoice. Not because I've sinned, but because you have indeed cleansed me. You've made me whiter than snow. You've forgiven me. You've forgiven me of all of my unrighteousness. And that church, that's the next step on the path to renewal, on the path to revival, that we receive his joy. We cry out for mercy. We ask for forgiveness. And we receive the spirit of God, which brings a joy into our lives. In verse 10, David knows he cannot do this without the Holy Spirit's intervention. He says, God, would you create in me a clean heart? I don't know if you know this, but the promises of the new covenant is that when we say yes to Jesus, that he removes our heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh, that he gives us a new 
heart, a heart with a supernatural ability to love God and to love people. The truth of the matter is we are without an excuse if we've said yes to Jesus because we've been given a new heart. We need to learn to walk in the freedom of that gift of a new heart, a freedom of forgiveness. Sometimes we just need to be gracious with ourselves and, and, and with God and, and to realize that God has forgiven us and taken us on a path. Receive the gift of being free. Allow that to infuse you with joy. And when you do, it opens up this opportunity to take the next step. And the next step is to be a light. So we cry out for mercy. We ask for forgiveness. We receive his joy. And then we are a light to the world. We are a light to our family. We're a light to those around us. Verse 13, he says, then after all of this, then I will teach. I will be an example to others who do wrong. In verse 14, he says, my tongue will sing aloud of your praise. In verse 15, he says, open my lips to declare your praises. I think far too often we become consumers of God. We turn to God to get what we want from God and not to, to receive from God in order to give back to others. God desires to bless you, but he desires to bless you so that you will be a blessing to others. If you want more of God, be a light in a broken world. If you want to see God move in a powerful way in our city, be a light. Share what he has done for you. Teach, as David says. Be an example to others. Sing. Have a heart of praise. Open your lips. I think it's fascinating that just last week when the group was praying for grace, one of the things they heard is that we need to be bold. We need to be brave. We need to be full of faith and speak in those places where God is telling us to speak, to share our faith with others. The way best to be a light to others is to model God to others. When people see you, they should see you representing the very living God. That should cause them to say, what's the deal with that person? Why are they so different? And we model God to others when we are as merciful as the Father has been merciful to us. We model God to others when we are as gracious to others as God has been gracious to us, when we are as forgiving to others as God has been to us. When we delight in, in the way God delights, we delight in others the way God delights in us, not because of anything that we've done, but just because we are his creation. When we see people as being image bearers and we respect the image of God that they bear, when we're willing to lay down our lives for others, even those people who aren't necessarily doing what we want them to do or doing it in the way that we think they should do it. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves for other people? There's this paradox in this passage uh, that just, it just jumps off the page. Joy impacting our community and brokenness at the same time. I just want you to say this, there's joy and there's brokenness. David says in verse 17, the sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And the question is, how is something that's broken good for anything? I was thinking about this, like, like what good is a wheelchair with a broken wheel? It's not even a comfortable chair, right? Or, or a, 
a power drill that doesn't have a motor that works in it, doesn't even make a good paperweight. Or I was thinking about a, a glass, a, you know, a broken glass isn't any good for drinking. And in, in most cases, it would be hazardous to even use it as a glass. When is something that's broken actually a good thing? As a politician, writer, religious reader from the 6th century, Sir Richard Baker said these words. He said, while other things may be worse for breaking, yet a heart is never at its best till it be broken. For till it be broken, we cannot see what is in it. The sacrifice God requires is an honest, humble, broken our over our offensive ways heart. Because only in that light do we see our depravity and we see God's enormity. The truth of the matter is we are all wretched, right? All like sheep have gone astray. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all wretched. The only question is, do we know it? And I wonder even as I, as I teach, does this kind of talk offend you? that I should say to you that you are wretched, that I am wretched. But the fact of them is the psalmist write that apart from God, there's, there's no good in us. The, Joshua says the heart is deceitful above all things. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? Some translations say the heart is desperately wicked. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know this, and that's why we need Jesus. That's why we need to say, God, show me my wicked ways and teach me to walk in the path of righteousness. Forgive me and give me a new heart. When we know who we really are and we know who God is, it produces joy. It produces worship. It produces honor. It produces respect. It produces gratitude. Spurgeon actually wrote, a great sinner pardoned, makes a great singer. Do you know how great your sin is? And just as importantly, do you know how far God traveled to pardon you? When we live into Psalm 51, it grounds us in reality. It makes us humble lovers of God and great lovers of people. That's what a broken and contrite spirit is all about. It's about being humble enough to know how desperate we are for a living God to move in our lives. It's being desperate enough to want God to do more than we can ask, think, or imagine according to the power of the Spirit at work within us. Not because of anything we've already done, but because God loves us. The path to renewal. We got to recognize our offensive ways. We got to cry out for mercy, ask for forgiveness, receive his joy, and be a light. We're going to close the service a little differently than we have since we started the pandemic, and we're going to allow John uh, to lead us in a song, a singing of Psalm 51. I had a vision this week as I thought about this sermon, people really all over the country watching this broadcast, praying Psalm 51 for themselves. Not thinking about what other people need to hear. Oh, boy, I know somebody that needed to hear this sermon. None of that. But thinking about their own depravity. That they would hear this psalm. That they would, that they would hear this song being sung over them. And they would begin to do some earnest work with God. God, would you create in me a clean heart? Would you show me my transgressions? 
Would you remove my heart of stone? Would you remove my angry heart? Would you remove my resentful heart? Would you remove my prejudiced heart? Would you remove my stubborn heart, my greedy heart, my ungrateful heart, my sinful heart? Lord, would you remove that heart and would you create in me a new heart, a clean heart, a joyful heart, a generous heart, a heart fully devoted to you? We're going to sing. I invite you to find a place, whether it's in your living room, anywhere else, just find a place where you can just listen to these words that you can sing along and do some work with God. Lord, thank you for Psalm 51. Thank you for the opportunity for us to do some business with you, to recognize our own depravity and receive your extraordinary gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of giving us a new heart, a clean heart. Lord, help us to know who we are before you and to celebrate that. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, I just want to remind you that we have people online that would love to pray for you. We had a sense that there were some older uh, women in the congregation that just are struggling and might need some personal prayer. So if you if that resonates with you, just dial the number on your screen, call in. Uh, if you just need help walking through what repentance and receiving Jesus looks like, we would love to do that with you as well. God bless you. Have a great Sunday.